meekness and majesty, manhood and deity. In perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Father, we ask that this morning you will help each and every one of us here to see Christ. I pray for those who have not heard of him, that they will hear him for the first time and marvel at him. I pray for those of us who know him, that you will open our eyes and our hearts once again and marvel at what you have done in your Son, to marvel at our Saviour and our Lord. And pray, Father, that as a result, your church will be built up as we repent and believe, as we put our faith in him, and that you will be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, your Bible open to Luke 9. The passage that we're looking at uh, is there, uh, verse 28 to 36. Well, last week we heard Jesus calling people to follow him. To follow means uh, to have Jesus as our leader. Following Jesus means that he is our leader, he leads us, he guides us, he teaches us what we are to do with our life how we are to live every moment of it. If Jesus is our military leader, when he asks us to hold our position, we hold. When he asks us to charge, we charge, regardless of the terrain, regardless of the enemies. If you think of Jesus as your financial leader, if he asks you to invest, you invest. When he asks you to dump your stocks, you dump all your stocks, regardless of the value, regardless of the markets. Followers trust and listen and follow their leaders. So followers of Jesus are to trust and listen and follow Jesus. But there are many reasons stopping people from trusting and following Jesus. And by that, I'm referring to both the decision, the initial decision to become a Christian, as well as the ongoing decisions of trusting and obeying Christ. Sometimes it could be plain rejection of him or disobedience or pride, but sometimes it could be fear and doubt. Can I really trust this man with my life? Should I really listen to him and trust him and do whatever he says and go wherever he leads? Is this kingdom of God that he claims that he's bringing, is it for real? Is he really who he claims to be? deny myself and take up the cross and follow him? What if he's not the real deal? Well, we'll see in today's passage God dealing with the disciples' fear and doubt. And in turn, he deals with your fear and my fear as well, which very often, I think, holds us back from taking up the cross and following Christ. Today's passage is commonly known as the Transfiguration. Clearly, the titles come from verse 29. Jesus was praying, and the appearance of his face changed. Transfiguration is commonly seen by many Christians as being out of place of the gospel narrative. It seems to be a standalone passage that gives us a glimpse of this out-of-this-world Jesus. 
who chillaxed with the two big guns of the Old Testament. But when we read the transfiguration carefully, in the context of Luke, as well as in the context of the Old Testament, there is much more that God is telling his people and in this very significant event. So let us begin by looking at the context of Luke. Firstly, notice that transfiguration comes immediately after Jesus' teaching concerning his death and Peter's confession. Take a look at 9.20. 9.20, Jesus said to them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. We saw that two weeks ago. This is the first time in the gospel that Jesus was recognized as the promised Messiah through whom God will fix this world and usher in his perfect kingdom. But this is shockingly and it's followed immediately by Jesus' teaching concerning his death. 9.21, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The disciples were expecting a political military Christ, a glorious Christ, like a glorious knight that comes charging in a shining armor, defeating all the enemies. But this Christ says he will suffer and be killed. Well, where is all the promised glory? And not only that, Christ called his followers to follow him. 9.23, we saw last week, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, imagine if you were one of the disciples back then. Right after a sumptuous free dinner of tuna sandwich, fresh tuna sandwich, your miraculous, powerful leader dropped the bomb on you. He said he will soon suffer and die. And he called you to follow him. Wouldn't you have questions at, at this point? I would. Can this man be trusted? Is he really the real thing? Is he really the promised glorious Christ? And most important of all, will I have a glorious future following him? Wouldn't you question? Or in fact, wouldn't you, wouldn't you have questions as such today already in your Christian life? Especially when the following of Jesus gets tough. Well, this is the context in which we find the transfiguration. The disciples had, are in a state of fear and doubt, but God has something to show them. Understood in this context, transfiguration is not just some random act of God, but a deliberate follow-up to Jesus' teaching about his suffering and death. God wants to strengthen his disciples in their weakness, and you and I, too, need to be strengthened by God. Secondly, did you notice that the transfiguration is only the second time in the gospel where a voice from heaven is heard? The first is at Jesus' baptism. Now, think about this. Do you think God will anyhow just yell down from heaven whenever he likes? Probably not. He did it at significant points of Jesus' ministry, crucial points. He did it at the baptism to mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Father, Son, and Spirit together made the point, Adam blew it, Israel blew it, but now this is my son. 
Immediately after the baptism, Jesus has a showdown with, this, with Satan in the wilderness, and he prevailed. Adam blew it, Israel blew it, my son, Jesus, overcame. And now at the transfiguration, God's voice is again heard. 9.35, this is my son, my chosen one. So seen in the light of baptism, the transfiguration is God signaling the beginning of the second phase or second stage of Jesus' ministry on earth that's leading up to his crucifixion. This means that just as Jesus' ministry post-baptism, all the work of preaching and healing and power and casting out of demons that we have been seeing is sent and empowered by God, Jesus' upcoming work of suffering and dying on the cross is also sent and empowered by God. Now, understood in this context, transfiguration is simply God's strong statement and decisive endorsement. He assures the disciples and us that Jesus' suffering and his death is in God's powerful hands that Jesus has God's full backing on this. Let's turn now to look at the transfiguration in the context of the Old Testament. The first thing to notice is that even the events surrounding the transfiguration are setting up transfiguration to be understood in the Old Testament context. Before the transfiguration, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 with fish and bread. What does that remind you of? God feeding the Israelites, providing with manna in the desert, the children of Israel. Now, after the transfiguration, Jesus came down from the mountain. He encountered rebellious demons and faithless disciples. What does that remind you of? Moses coming down from Sinai, where he too encountered a faithless and rebellious generation. Exodus 32. Now, can you see how Sinai and Exodus is strongly in the background of transfiguration? Transfiguration is using the patterns in Exodus that we have read and to make statements to us about who Jesus is and what God is achieving through him. So now take a look at the passage. Start with 9.28. 9.28, the first thing to notice is a clear connection between this verse and the previous verse that we saw last week. 9.28 says, Now about eight days, now about eight days after these sayings. Now we ask ourselves, what sayings? What is it referring to? Well, it is the previous sayings of Jesus, which ended in 9.27. 9.27 say, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God. Wow. To see the kingdom of God, really, who will see it? And when will they see it? Well, 9.28 says, Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. You see the connection. Jesus is giving his three disciples a glimpse of the kingdom of God a glimpse of the exalted king in his kingly glory. Now, we'll see today what the transfiguration tells us about Jesus. And here is the first thing. It tells us that Jesus is God's specially appointed messenger. 
Jesus is God's specially appointed messenger. In Exodus 33, Moses met God on the mountain. We saw that. And he received revelation from God for the people. In 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah met with God on the mountain as well. And he too received revelation from God. And now in Luke, Jesus brought three disciples up the mountain. And they too met with God and received a revelation from him. So what we see happening in the transfiguration is that God is confirming Jesus as his appointed messenger, like Moses and Elijah. In other words, Jesus is our creator God, specially appointed spokesman, specially appointed messenger for humanity. He is appointed by God to deliver a message to you and to me. That means that whatever Jesus is saying to us is whatever that God is saying to us. Jesus is not an advertisement that we can ignore, but it's a message from God. Just as Moses delivered God's law to Israel, Jesus delivers God's message to us. And I think that should make all of us sit up, isn't it? Whenever we hear Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks is God speaks to us. But more than that, transfiguration tells us that Jesus is not just another messenger like Moses. Jesus is far superior than Moses. 928, 929, let's read on. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. In Exodus 34, after Moses had an encounter with God that we just read, do you remember what happened? His face was shining, is reflecting the glories of God. But Jesus was not just his face is shining. Jesus was thoroughly transformed into a radiant figure whose brilliance extended even to his clothes. Jesus' transfiguration is not just a reflection but an unveiling of God's glory. Unlike Moses' glory which can be veiled, Jesus' inherent glory can't be veiled. N.T. Wright, whom I don't always agree with, helpfully pressed this point on Jesus' transfiguration further, helpfully. And he says this, The transfiguration is an extraordinary moment of eschatological intrusion. Here we see God's matter God's new creation intersects with ours. In other words, Wright is saying, in showing the disciples Jesus' true splendor and glory and majesty, the transfiguration tells us, tells them and us, that with Jesus, God's new creation has already broken into this old age. It begins with Jesus himself, as the seed that is sown on earth 
and then rises to become the beginning of the new world. So if the disciples were ever to doubt if Jesus would be seated as king of this world with an exalted, being exalted and glorified by all, well, they have seen it now with their own eyes and exalted and glorified Jesus. Jesus is truly exalted and he's full of glory. And it's just not one person who said it, three persons witnessed it. Through the transfiguration, God is saying, hey guys, this man here is no Tom, Dick and Harry that you can choose to follow or not to follow. He is my appointed messenger. Forget Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Just look at him. He's in full glory, like the glory that I have. Next, in the transfiguration, we also see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. It indicates to us that whatever Jesus is teaching and doing is consistent and in fulfillment of all that God has been teaching and saying through the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. Together, they make the point that Jesus' upcoming suffering and death is all part of God's divine plan that he started ever since the Old Testament. In Jerusalem, through his crucifixion, Jesus will accomplish God's great salvation plan. Verse 31, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they were talking about Jesus' departure. If you take a look at your Bible at the footnote, you'll find that it says, Exodus. That's the other word for departure. Jesus' is exodus. That is, the three, per, the three of them spoke about Jesus' exodus. That is, through the transfiguration, God is saying he's bringing about a new exodus through Jesus. Not just for the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, but for humanity out of their slavery to sin and death and corruption. Now, what would that have meant for the disciples? Well, it means that when the disciples follow Jesus, or when you and I follow Jesus, we are not merely following some first-century version of today's millennial entrepreneurs, like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, whose sudden and short burst of brilliance is in such a short time of history. No, we are following a man who has been in God's divine plan to restore this world since ancient times. How firm and how secure and how much more meaningful is that? Let's continue to see what, the, what else the transfiguration tells us in verse 33. 33 says, And as the men were parting from him, Jesus, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. Well, Peter seemed to be trying to keep Moses and Elijah just for a little longer. He suggested building tents for them and one for Jesus as well. So is it a good thing that Peter is doing? Well, we need to look at, we need to look at God's response to figure that out. Verse 34 says, And as Peter was saying these things, he's still speaking. 
a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What is going on here? Well, Peter's suggestion got interrupted by God. In fact, rather abruptly and strongly. Why? Well, Peter's attempt to build tents to keep Moses and Elijah reflects his, his failure to grasp two things about Jesus. And God stepped in to correct him. And these are the two things. Firstly, Peter failed to recognize Jesus' superiority over Moses and Elijah. He failed to recognize that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are just shadows pointing to the reality who is in Christ. He treated Jesus and Moses and Elijah to be on par. But now that Jesus has arrived, Moses and Elijah must decrease. The law and the prophets were temporary, but Jesus is permanent. He is the real deal. So, God kind of yelled at Peter and said, Hey, Peter, wake up. He, he is my son, my chosen one, whom Moses and Elijah pointed to. It is right that Moses and Elijah leave and give limelight now to my son. Recognize him for who he is. Secondly, in seeking to build tents, Peter failed to recognize that Jesus is God's new tabernacle. What does that mean? Well, the, the word tent is also the word tabernacle. Basically, it means a dwelling place, a place to live. When Moses met God up in Mount Sinai in Exodus, God gave him plans to build the tabernacles. God promised that he would dwell with his people there. So, just as he has descended in the cloud on Sinai in Exodus, God descended in the cloud in the tabernacle. If you read 1 Kings 8, you'll notice that the cloud of the glory of God filled Solomon's temple when the temple is completed. God dwelt with his people there. And then you will notice also as well in Ezekiel, God met Ezekiel high on the mountain in Ezekiel 40, and God showed him plans to build a new prophetic temple. And then now in the transfiguration, God revealed his new temple for his new creation, where he will dwell with his people. But where is it? Where is this tabernacle, this temple? Well, we see the cloud of God's glory descending on Christ, Peter, and John, and James. The new temple is Christ himself, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily and in the assembly of his people. Now, perhaps... If Peter had realized that is how great Jesus is compared to Moses and Elijah, perhaps he wouldn't have been that fearful and doubtful. Let me now try to draw to a close after what we have seen about who Jesus is. If you are someone here who have ever tried following Jesus or is following him, that is really following him, doing what he says, treating him as your leader, you would know that it is a rather scary thing to do. There is a lot of fear and doubt that is involved. Because you stop trusting yourself 
and you start trusting Jesus, putting your life in someone's hands, making decisions that He asks you to make. Many of us here today are holding back from trusting and following Jesus. Some of us holding back in taking the first step to becoming a disciple of Jesus, becoming a Christian. Others of us, we hold back our trust in our ongoing trust in Him with many different aspects of our lives. We are fearful, we are doubtful. Can I really trust this man with my life? Should I really listen to him? Can I trust him? And, and do whatever he says and go wherever he leads. Is this kingdom of God that he claims that will be coming for real? Deny myself, take up the cross and follow him? What if he's not the real deal? Well, brothers and sisters and friends, God made it crystal clear to all of us through the transfiguration. 9.35, it says, He says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Apostle Peter was once fearful and doubtful, as we know. But let me close with what he wrote in his letter. Let me read from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myth when we, know, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. You see, it's not one person who saw Jesus in glory. Three person witnesses. It is true. Jesus' lordship and majesty is clearly manifested in the transfiguration. He is not just another man. He is God himself. So may we be wise and listen to this man, for he is God's son. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ we, we have a glorious king, a glorious king to follow, a glorious king to listen to and to obey. And not just a glorious king, Father, we know that he is a good and a loving and a sacrificial king who laid down his life for his people. He suffered and he died. His blood was shed on the cross, his body was broken so that his people, those who have faith in him, can be forgiven. Father, we pray that the Spirit of your Son will open our eyes to see his majesty in his servanthood and that we will be followers of Christ. We thank you now that in Christ we have a glorious King to follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.